you know the Genoa bridge collapsed two years ago, and uh, you know people were saying, well, the the bridge, which was owned basically by the Benetton family, had like not been maintained properly, and then forty three people died, so it should be like taken off them and nationalized, and like the Conte government didn't even come close to doing that. It like basically bought a thirty three percent public stake in it and said some of the rest would have to be resold. Uh, you know they haven't reversed the privatization, but then you get like La Repubblica. Uh, Tito Boeri, the 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 like leaders of the uh, liberal centrist parties, uh, the the centre left media, who are like, this is like Venezuela. Like, why are you like interfering in the? Why is there like state intervention in the economy? And and basically, like you know, part of that is like a cultural shift produced by the the end of the communist party. But also, really, it's because in the European Union, like you can't, you know. If you're in the European Union and Eurozone and have 2.5 trillion in public debt, then indeed you don't have many tools of state intervention in the economy. Hello friends, citizens of the Republica di Bunga, it's Alfe Bunga Bunga, the date is Thursday the 3rd of September, and we're happy to report that on the date of this recording, Silvio Berlusconi is still alive, although yesterday hey. was announced that our evil patron saint has contracted COVID, so uh, we're wishing him all the best before uh, before we even get this show started. My name is Alex Hochele, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. Um, I'm the producer of this episode, which is on Italy. Uh, Italy, as regular listeners will know, is the country of the future, um, which is a bit of an ironic phrase. Um, and there's been an added irony this year, sadly, which is that uh, coronavirus was hit Italy very strongly. It was the first uh, country in Europe, as you will all know, to be strongly hit by the virus, um, which in, in another way, uh, which is yet another way that uh, Italy was the country of the future. It announced what we were all about to receive. Uh, that's what we're talking about today, um, though actually talking a little bit more about Italian recent history with David Broder, who's the Europe editor at Jacobin magazine. He's a historian of French and Italian communism. And here today, we're going to be discussing with him his new book, First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy, which is out now on Verso. Uh, David was actually on, uh, back in, uh, episode 30 on the 30th of February, 2018, uh, which was right before the election that brought Five Star and Lega to power. Um, he's written this book, uh, you know, he's finished this book this year, uh, which reflects on Lega's ascent. Um, and although it's formally speaking about Lega's ascent, it's actually more a story of decline, a decline of, Italy as a country as a whole, but also all political forces, old and new, um, which is something that Lega has uh, benefited from. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, just to return to that point about the country, the future, I mean, we sometimes say that Italy is an augury. I mean, it's looking, <clears throat> it shows us the, the future. So, I mean, if that is the case, then it's um, the rise is that of the what, is, that what right. is that what augury means? I mean, it might be. It might might not be. Um, Phil we, doesn't like yeah, words I mean, that are found in books, so he's a little bit skeptical <laughs> like of calling it an augury. I don't like words that are found in New Left Review. Because oh, this, uh, this is this uh, is a insurgent podcast. How 
how well he's read to reason against reading. I mean, the... <laughs> Shakespeare anyway. Um, oh, Shakespeare. No, I mean, the, 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 the thing that's really, I think, striking about David's book is, which is excellent. I mean, it's not, not, not that point, but how the collapse of the Italian left and Alex, as you put it, all the other older political forces really um, creates the scene. For, for the rise of um, of Lega and to a certain extent Five Star as well, um, yeah. So really looking forward to getting into that with with David. Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's also the. Um, I mean, we've staked a lot of our claim on uh, using Italy as a way to, um, I suppose, distill the politics and economics of other developed countries and even uh, developing countries in terms of what's happening to them, um, political decay, economic stagnation. And also the specific uh, the specific kind of um, features of that, like the new party structures, the new political alignments, um, and the new social forms and kinds of uh, the social life that comes with that. So um, I think uh, I think uh, we you know we'll get a lot more of that from talking to David. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is obviously very on brand for us, but I mean, not just on brand in terms of us liking Italy or liking Silvio Berlusconi, but that it really condenses a lot of the features of uh, the contemporary world uh, in one in one country. Um, and this was all brought home to me recently watching uh, something that I think we might have discussed on this podcast before, I can't recall, but uh, the Sky Italia show in 1992 and its sequels 1993 and 1994, which show the breakdown of uh, the old uh, Italian First Republic and the birth of the new one. And many of those things, on the one hand, feel quite distant now. Um, they feel a kind of old hat, like, for example, television politics, the idea of, of politicians using television to communicate directly with voters. That feels old hat. But on the other hand, um, there's the germ there of something which is very current at the moment, which would be politicians using Twitter to connect directly to voters. So, you know, do you mean... We, do you mean- quote unquote president trump with his <laughs> yeah. twittering exactly yeah orange man bad um but you know there's another uh, augury i guess uh, where uh, you know for all that people talk about trump being a fascist or trump being the next hitler or whoever or even being a mussolini really trump is just another berlusconi um so once again uh, the roots of the contemporary world are found right there in early 90s italy um, so anyway, without further ado, uh, we should call up David and talk through his new book. Uh, we should probably also mention at some point the uh, thing about Berlusconi's health. I yes, no, it, that he's going that, to be okay. Yeah, yeah, we we did do that, but maybe we can maybe we can start maybe we should start with that anyway. Um, because um, yeah, I had I had thought about we were obviously naturally being tagged by just about everyone on on Twitter. I exaggerate, but sure. <laughs> because of that yesterday, um, we have to say yeah, that. I mean. It would be. I don't know if it'd be good or bad for our brand if he, you know, if he doesn't recover. So we should, yeah. we should. Bear he's that in, in the dang, He is in the dangerous group, like the group that is most susceptible to COVID. And I think I, for one, would be personally greatly saddened. Yeah. Well, I mean, there we go. Also, we, you know, it would be sad if it were COVID. As I said, like on Twitter, it'd be the real um, subject of history was COVID <laughs> rather than the organized working classes. Uh, He's our icon. Big yeah. Silvio, as Ben used to say. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I uh, think he'll be fine, but it's a problem you'll have to address one way or the other fairly soon, you'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you'd, 
you'd assume that, but you never know. Well, you I can, didn't think he was going to live forever. You, you can know? plastic like, surgery uh, your way to, yeah. to infinite life. Head in a vat, you know, at least go to 95 or something. Yeah, yeah it's good. Okay, so uh, as listeners will uh, have gathered, we're discussing this and recording this on the day after it was announced that Silvio Berlusconi has caught COVID-19. And uh, joining us to discuss this issue and this issue alone <laughs> is David Broder. Um, <laughs> do you want to give us uh, your prognosis on uh, on Silvio's health? Um, well, I can't claim much inside information, although I did. Uh, I used to know someone who knew him personally. Uh, but uh, I mean, he—they uh, say it's uh, symptomless, and that he's doing fine, and he's resting in uh, Arcore, which is his uh, house outside Milan and near Monza, uh, where he, he owns the local football team. Uh, and they say he's working as usual and feeling fine. Um, so uh, his—he you know, apparently got it from his good friend Flavio Briatori, the uh, disgraced former Formula One boss, who also presented the Italian version of The Apprentice. And everyone at his club, uh, billionaire, got it, and uh, Silvio did too. Uh, Briatore himself was in hospital, but has pulled through. Um, so uh, let's hope Silvio a uh, well. He doesn't even need a recovery because apparently he doesn't even feel ill. But um, yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine. I mean, I don't think he would ever admit to ill health anyway. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. But uh, yeah, wishing him all the best from yeah, Alpha wishing Silvio all the best from Alpha Bunga Bunga. <laughs> Well, uh, we, all, we all know he's he's literally going to live forever, so he'll be fine. I'm sure that Silvio is using his downtime to listen to uh, your back catalogue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We should yeah. actually maybe send him like the back catalogue as a kind of get well present, something like that. Maybe if we could find a way to make sure that it gets to him. <laughs> we send him a nice shirt with his face on it. You know, we could get him to do like a selfie with the shirt. And all sorts be, of possibilities. Yeah, he'd, he'd, be, he'd be delighted to know that he um, has really... Well, has has been the sort of leading figure of our of our contemporary age. So, um, I'm, absolutely, I'm he will. We're immortalizing him. In fact, irrespective. So exactly. you know, he should. I'm sure he'll be happy about that. So uh, much as we'd love to spend, you know, two hours uh, with David talking about Berlusconi, that's not what we're going to do. And we're actually going to get on with the meat of this, which is uh, discussing his wonderful new book. So you start with a book. You start the book with the idea that middle class Italians have a conception of Britain as a quote unquote normal country, um, which might even come as a bit of a surprise to Brits. Um, what do Italians mean by this? And what do Italians want when they say they want to be normal? Um, I should note that this is probably a discussion which would be familiar to most people who don't live in Northern Europe or an Anglophone country, because it's something that's uh, repeated throughout the world, this idea of normality or whatever it's called locally. Um, but specifically in Italy, what does it what does normal mean? I think the idea of normality is basically like, everything would uh everything would function, everything would be reliable, everyone knows their place, uh, there's no conflict. Um, and uh, I mean, like, I, I think the uh, a good example would be um, the way in which, like, Italians, like, imagine um, British politics to be very different from it, how it is because they basically imagine it to be, like, business-like and not adversarial and think of that as a good thing. Um, and mm. Brexit has somewhat upset this, and also because John Burko has made it into into like Italian TV. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like I think it's um, it's very common for um, foreign uh, writers 
journalist writing about Italy to kind of describe all of its problems in terms of kind of cultural tropes and supposed kind of eternal ills, which are sort of somehow rooted in the soil or, or the national culture. Uh, but this is also something that's very much used by uh, Italian, uh, like liberal elites. Uh, basically, the idea that Italy is kind of backward and chaotic and corrupt, and it needs to sort of sort itself out by following some foreign model. Um, so, mm. uh, I say in the book, you know, because I'm British, people are like have this like fantastical idea of Britain as like. Uh, yeah, this like country where like everyone can get a job, and it's uh, you know the, they they have ideas like I mean, for example, like a really classic idea about Italy is the idea that Italy has um, every region is so different. Um, there's massive inequality across the country, and even things like the language is like incomparable to one reason, region to another. Which, like, of course, there are great diversities, <laughs> yeah. but basically, in order to think that, you'd have to know like nothing about Britain. Yeah. Uh, in fact, Britain has more, um, like, depending on the like size of the regions you're looking at. But like, Britain has um, inequality, like, between like parliamentary constituencies, is actually more than uh, Italy. Um, and you know there are very poor places in the UK, and indeed even the uh, accents and dialects of the UK are quite diverse. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean they, they just have a, a basically fantastical idea of it, and and, and similarly of Germany. Um, in fact, I think Italians probably see Britain a bit like Britons think of Germany, um, and like um, a place where you know, things work. Thought, yeah, yeah. So so one thing I talk about in the in the book is this uh, Federico Rampini, who's a, a journalist for La Repubblica, which is like the main centre-left daily. Uh, he produced a book in, uh, I think, 1996 called Germanization, and like a very common idea of, of the kind of early uh, phase of like the EU and 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 the development of the euro is that the is that because uh, the Bundesbank was at the centre of the European monetary system, and because the euro would basically be built around. Uh, the model of like the reintegration of East Germany into Germany and the single currency of, of the Deutsche Mark and so on. The, the idea was basically like Europe will be uh, a sort of mechanism to make all of Europe the same as West Germany. And that's a good thing. Um, yeah. So the, so constantly, although of course, even the period before Italy joined the Euro, uh, it required like um, shock uh, austerity uh, to to get the public finances in order, kind of massive like privatizations, uh, just to just to raise cash year to year uh, to reduce the budget deficit. This kind of medicine was always sold as we're you know we're like you know taking bad taking sort of nasty tasting medicine in order to get our house in order. And then eventually we'll end up like a serious, normal, efficient country. And uh, yeah. that has, has totally failed. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a pathology, which is um, much more widely shared than in Italy, but it does seem to be something which is extremely prevalent in the discourse there. I mean, I like one thing that you note in the book was that um, you, you and I'm quoting here, typical of the elitist craze to see all things Italian as backwards and all things Anglophone as modern. Renzi's move to eviscerate uh, the workers' statute appeared with uh, with an English name, the Jobs Act. So I think that's quite uh, e emblematic um, and something that I'm personally familiar with in Brazil. And as I said, listeners elsewhere might uh, might find similarities wherever they are as well. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 use of English is uh, particularly. Um, 
annoying because it it's often in appalling english but they just think it sounds modern and cool i mean <laughs> yeah. it's true of advertising and stuff as well um but um yeah so just to move move along um because really the book is at least on face value i think there's a lot more to it than this but a, a historical account of the rise of the populist right and how they in your words conquered italy um, so although uh, Matteo Salvini, the Lega leader, uh, is obviously an important figure in this account, uh, your argument is that this triumph actually, I mean triumph such as it is, is actually really a, an unfolding process that begun 30 years earlier. It's one of political turbulence, while at the same time, what I guess you could call social quiescence. Um, and one of the really striking examples of, of this political turbulence uh, and the switching of sides and the movement of one party to a different part of the spectrum. Um, at least one example which struck me was that of uh, Maria Fida Moro, who is the <laughs> daughter of the Christian Democrat premier who was murdered by the Red Brigades. Um, she then defected from her father's party to the Communist Refoundation Party, which was a break off from the Communist Party. And uh, and then ended up in the neo-fascist Italian social movement. So maybe, I, I, for me, that just tells a bit of a story on its own. So maybe we can just start there. And if you could tell us a little bit about who she is and how that happened and maybe what that suggests about uh, the Italy of, uh, of the past 30 years. Mm, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, part of why it's interesting is that her, uh, her father was uh, himself a sort of... Uh, you know, Aldo Moro, who's a prime minister uh, in the, the kind of mid-60s and again in the mid-70s, uh, he himself uh, organized two of the great political realignments of the, the so-called First Republic, like Italy, from like the World War II until the mid-90s. Because uh, in the 60s, he brought the socialists. So he was a Christian Democrat. Uh, in the 60s, he brought the um, socialists into government uh, for the first time, together with his Christian Democrat party, then in the 70s, he um, tried to, uh, he, you know, he was instrumental in the historic compromise and bringing the Communist Party into um, into the governing majority, If, if it, even though they never actually succeeded in, in forming a government together. Um, but, I mean, his, uh, so he was killed by the Red Brigades in uh, 78. I mean, I think his daughter was, I mean, I, I pick her example because it's so extreme and yeah. Uh, kind of funny, but really, I think she was a, a, a bit mad because I don't think there's a, a real political logic. I mean, one one <laughs> one thing that we that's kind of um, uh, kind, kind of taking place at, at the moment, in particular, is a kind of like um, there's like there's an attempt to kind of relativize the the differences of of the past. So it's like an attempt to like basically make it okay to have been a fascist once by saying it's kind of like having been a communist once. So like in uh, Terracino, which is a town south of Rome, they're, they're naming a public square after both uh, Giorgio Almirante, who was the leader of the, the neo-fascist MSI, uh, and Enrico Berlinguer, who was the leader of the Communist Party uh, at the same time. So it would be like Piazza Almirante Berlinguer. <laughs> so is, is, this a, is this a bit like horseshoe theory, but kind of the geographical version you know that's it's it's fine they're the same everybody's tried tried both you know you need to you need to try both so you can reject both yeah well um i mean there are um there are quite a few uh transplants from because um there are quite a few transplants from the the far left to to the far right 
uh, and the Roy's have been. Uh, but you know, historically, uh, that was mainly because uh, you know most young intellectuals were fascists at some point uh, in the period of the regime, and then tons of 68ers ended up with uh, with Berlusconi or with the Lega. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, one facet of Italian public life is uh, it's very forgiving of past indiscretions. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like if you look at say like the way Corbyn's um, you know, early 80s kind of past was used uh, to to smear him. I find it hard to imagine that working in Italy. Hmm. Uh, I think the uh, sort of hmm. uh, bad associations are too widespread for that to, to really stick. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe one thing, or at least one moment, which actually did really provide a big interruption between the past and, and, the, and our current period um and by which i mean the the kind of 30 years since the end of the cold war uh, was the fall of the first republic uh this is obviously something that we've discussed a couple of times on this podcast uh, we discussed it together uh, back in 2018 but it might be actually worth just recapping that story a little bit mm-hmm. um so that the discussion afterwards focusing more on the lega on the populist right also on the five-star movement um all that stuff that we're going to cover uh in over the next hour or so um is put into a little bit of context and i so i for me at least personally i always find that the 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 history of early 90s italy really fascinating um because of the, the themes that we discuss on this podcast so um yeah maybe you could start there with the fall of the first republic the ascension of berlusconi and forza italia and so on mm-hmm. um so i mean i think the you know, because um, so part of what I uh, emphasize in this book, as I, as I hinted at earlier, is I, I generally reject any kind of reading of what's going on in Italy in terms of kind of like uh, something about the national culture or some sort of propensity to be like chaotic. Um, and, you know, I think often uh, Italian politics is presented in a way um, that, that makes it kind of that just shows there's kind of mass of volatile stuff going on. Um, but if we look at an only recent past, uh, we see that it was in fact one of the most stable political systems in Europe. Because from, you know, when Italians talk about the First Republic, that's because from 1947 uh, until 1994, every single government had uh, the Christian Democrats as like the biggest party in it. So while there were lots of coalitions and a lot of ministers and prime ministers circulating, really post-war Italy is just a Christian democratic state. Uh, The biggest opposition party, the Communist Party, um, was never in national government throughout that entire period. Um, So um, while, of course, there was, uh, in in particular, in the late 60s and, and 1970s, um, some very intense social conflict in terms of the like party political system was actually quite stagnant and stable. Um, but the problem with that and its fundamental weakness is like the the solidity of the system was basically premised on the willingness of all of the other parties to gang up with each other to keep out the communists. Um, you know, while there were attempts uh, by some in the Communist Party, particularly Enrico Berlinguer, its leader in the 1970s, to, to, to bring it into a coalition uh, in government with the Christian Democrats, uh, that uh, didn't succeed precisely because of the uh, killing of uh, Aldo Moro, to which I alluded earlier. Um, 
but, but if yeah, the communists... The, 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 obviously, the end of anti-communism as a cohering force with the end of the Cold War um, ushers in a big transformation at the same time as you get this massive anti-corruption investigation. So maybe we can take us forward from there. Yeah, absolutely, because the, um, the, the existence of the Communist Party basically made it impossible for there to be an exchange of power, particularly as Italy was a NATO country from 1949. Um, so when... The, the the internal solidity of the Communist Party was already in steep decline in the 80s. And uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved, the leaders of the party basically decided to make it a social, democrat, a social democratic party. Um, also, of course, in general, the disappearance of the USSR caused an enormous wave of neoliberal triumphalism and destroyed uh, all sorts of uh, left-wing forces everywhere. Um, what had happened in in the in the uh, 80s there was a five party coalition with Bettino Craxi uh, as prime minister who was a socialist um he was very close to Berlusconi and it was Craxi who first allowed um Berlusconi to um have uh, like national private tv networks which hadn't existed before and of course that's important to Berlusconi establishing his power um but with the this kind of system. The other, the the thing about it is, as a five-party coalition, is basically uh, it was normal in the first republic in post-war Italy for the parties of government to share out jobs, uh, tendering, contra- uh, you know, like private uh, work for for public works, basically among themselves, among their contacts, and this fed a very intense development of uh, corruption. Uh, also because um, the Socialist Party wasn't really like a mass-based Labour Party, it was more like a parliamentary uh, faction. Um, and basically after the Communists, uh, so while there'd been like scandals before of, of corruption in, in government, uh, particularly in the early 70s, um, with the Communist threat kind of out of the way, um, and also the the idea of kind of integrating uh, Italy into the European Union uh, formed in uh, 1992, um, there was a offensive uh, against uh, corruption called Tangentopoli, uh, which led to uh, several thousand arrests, including more than half of the sitting members of parliament. And uh, Craxi's party, the Socialists, were particularly heavily hit, uh, but so too um, the Christian Democrats. Uh, so actually, uh, while the Communist Party in 1991 uh, dissolved and, and and reformed as a democratic party of the left, which is today's Democrat Party. Uh, they dropped the word left. Um, the Christian Democrats and Socialists also um, dissolved uh, under the pressure of these um, corruption trials. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, re- it's really fascinating how exactly that the, the end of the threat of communism um, or of you know the Communist Party. Uh, leads all these other parties to feel like it's okay to open up the skeletons in their closets, or rather, try to investigate the skeletons in each other's closet without uh, without risk of being overthrown. And yet, what ends up happening is that those parties all end up crumbling, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they're also. I mean, I think I think an element of the story is also the kind of idea of like part of the story is well, the Italian Communist Party has collapsed. But I think it's also an idea which is kind of like, in its own way, even the Christian Democrat and Socialist parties were kind of part of a a quite kind of like, um, uh, kind of like statist 
political order. So I mean, even even before then, you know, the the Communist Party had like um, had started to develop this kind of idea, which was like um, the uh, not just the Communist Party. So it was like even before like 1991, there was a kind of rising tide of kind of like liberal and anti-statist uh, opinion in Italy and pressure for privatization. I mean, that started even under. Uh, Craxi. And so even the initial rise of the Lega in the 1980s is actually fundamentally driven by the idea of a need to peel back uh, the state. Because uh, often it's called like a, a welfare chauvinist party. But actually, if you look at what it was originally saying, it's all the language of like bringing the efficiency of the market into the state. Um, yeah, so, so that, so that think, kind of neoliberal offensive was already was already present before, obviously, the end of the Cold War. Um, but I mean, I guess just to move this forward, um, I mean, we, we obviously have then the story of uh, the ascension of Berlusconi Sforza Italia, who's the biggest beneficiary of this and forms a government which is short-lived. Um, without spending too much time on that specifically, I think I, I wanted to maybe just move it forward and uh you know kind of park that because i think that's i think we'll delve back into for example what lego was doing already at that time which is important to understand mm-hmm. how it ends up in government uh you know 25 30 years on um but also um to just actually zoom forward and ask you what motivated you to write the book i mean uh was there was it just uh the ascension of lega that made you think okay well actually this story really needs to be told now Mm, I, I suppose actually, like the book uh, went through several different versions of like what it should be about. What it should be about. Uh, I hope it doesn't show up too much uh, reading. It, Not at because, all. No, no. I mean, <laughs> uh, because basically, also because um, I had planned to write a book um, uh, before the twenty eighteen election um, uh, about basically uh, mainly focused on the, the kind of material that's in the uh, the, the second and uh, third chapters, basically about the collapse of the Italian left and the replacement of like a, a sort of working class and social left with one focused on uh, Europeanism. Um, but uh, over time, I decided to focus more on the uh, the reasons for the rise of both Five Star and uh, the Lega. And uh, after the uh, the March 2018 election, it, it became clear that the the rise of the the, the populist right is is the bigger uh, story. But as I say, I think all of these processes are uh, interconnected. Um, I mean, the the you know uh, in like um, of course the uh, the uh, the Lega were in uh, government while I was writing most of the book. And they know now uh, are not. So one might say, well, they they haven't triumphed. Uh, but I think what I, I try and show in in the book is that the uh, the last thirty years have systematically shifted the entire political spectrum far mm. to the right. Mm. Uh, so even in periods where the uh, the you know it's like when um, when Berlusconi wasn't in government, he was still you know, setting the political agenda. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not as if there are periods where so things swing against our side, and then it gets better for a bit, and and because you know it's like every single government over the last thirty years has pursued reforms to um, to worsen 
uh, workers' rights to pair back the welfare state, to cut overall public spending, to cut public investment. Um, the economy is smaller now than it was more than 20 years ago. In fact, it, even before the coronavirus uh, pandemic, it was smaller than 20 years ago. Mm. And the the politics of like harsh national identitarianism and anti-immigration are ever more visible. So it's a continual process of it getting worse. Yeah, no, I was about to say it, it, it comes very, very strongly in the book and it's a striking, I think, characteristic of contemporary Italian politics. But you, you talked about the process there. So maybe before, before discussing, as I'm sure we will, Salvini and the present day Lega, could you start by giving us a bit of an overview of its origins and, you know, how, how did this process start? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the Lega um, originates uh, mainly from um, the old Christian Democrat Party, um, which, um, and in particular, um, like, um, basically, like, in the, uh, in 1970, um, Italy started to have regional governments, and these governments have a lot of uh, control over um, all manner of, um, like, big spending uh, public policies. So, for example, the health system is uh, is run on a, a regional basis. Um, in uh, certain uh, northern regions, uh, which were um, relatively wealthier, um, this helped to drive the or sort of lay the material basis for a politics of like, well, why should our region pay more in tax than it gets back or is allowed to spend for itself? And this is particularly true um, in the the kind of end of the seventies, early eighties, when the post-war growth is pretty much exhausted. Uh, Italy had entered the European monetary system, which pegged the lira to the Deutschmark. Uh, and therefore, like undermined the the the, the, the use of um, devaluation, um, and uh, in uh, Veneto, which is an interesting region because uh, Veneto is like the region of and north of Venice, uh, the uh, there was a kind of split within the the Christian Democrat uh, party there, um, which uh, laid the basis for the uh, Liga Veneta which was one of the first uh, local leagues. So basically in a few regions, these kind of leagues uh, emerged over the 80s and then they right. formed a single party in uh, in 91. And uh, they were led by uh, Umberto Bossi, uh, who was the first uh, senator, I believe he was elected in uh, 86, no, 87. Um, and uh, this uh, party like um, is the only one that survived uh, tangentopoly and the corruption scandals and so on of the early 90s um, and basically it emerged initially like it, it is very often said that it, it like used to be a northern separatist party but that was only really true for a couple of years in the late 90s uh, it emerged originally as a, uh, a party calling for northern regions to be able to keep more of their um, tax revenue um, but then in the early 90s with the wider collapse of the political system uh it uh it basically was able to uh to to exploit the the crisis to call for a very general refoundation of the italian state um so in the 92 election uh which took place like after the first arrests uh in the uh, in Tangentopoli, uh it uh it's got about eight percent of the vote and then in the 94 election uh, it actually became the party with most uh, mps 
like it had uh, about a sixth of all of the seats in parliament so uh, yes just i guess just to just to jump in on one one point here what was i guess what's the appeal of of that kind you said there was a a northern separatist few years but more generally it was a regionalism why is that so appealing to i guess to the areas of northern italy that you've that you've just been talking about mm-hmm. um well basically the 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 reason is that over the um uh 80s, the um, the public debt of Italy ballooned uh, under pressure of the European monetary system. It, it went from, uh, I think, 50, 58% in 1980 to uh, over 100% in uh, 1982. Um, so the state's debt was ballooning, uh, public investment was falling, uh, and the economy was flatlining. Um, so basically, the effect of all of those things combined is to put more pressure on taxpayers. And uh, in the regions where the Lega was originally strongest, uh, would be like um, very uh, provincial. So like the, the bases of the Lega's support are not places like Milan and Turin and Genoa, mm. or really any big cities, but um, kind of like small towns. And, and and like, if you look at like, what kind of person supports them, it's the most common is like small businessmen and the workers who work for small businessmen. Um, because, uh, to, I mean, I'll give a, a specific example. Um, so I know a guy who does, uh, who, who works with uh, um, tanners, like who work with leather, who, um, who like make uh, steering wheels for uh, German, uh, for like Volkswagen and stuff, yeah? So it's like under the pressure of uh, the currency uh, being pegged, their exports become more expensive at the same time um, investment is falling uh, and uh, so it, so basically what that means is like they're under more and more pressure and you get this kind of like self-exploitation of small mm. businessmen who are like basically unable to compete and at the same time they're paying out loads in tax which is of course more distributed you know it's kind of relatively more distributed towards the poorer southern regions. Uh, mm. If you look at Veneto in particular, it's interesting because Veneto at the end of World War II was actually one of the poorest regions in Italy uh, and then by the, already by the 70s was the single richest region. So like there in particular, I think the, the kind of, uh, so it's like a very, uh, very uh, Catholic um, area historically. Um, so, and very much a heartland of the Christian democracy. So this kind of idea, which would be like, um, we are like hardworking people who've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We used to be poor and now we're rich. uh, And yet now we're still paying tons in tax, which is all going down south. Mm. And I mean, that's a... That's a characterization which I think comes through very clearly in something that we were just talking about in the uh, introduction before you came on the line uh, about uh, the the TV series of Sky Italia in 1992, 1993, and 1994, um, where the leg are, are characterized as kind of uh, kind of crude, pugnacious, uh, often yeah, small business owners um, who um, yeah, I mean who, who are really characterized as being somehow like kind of a bit. Yeah, I guess crude and backward, I guess, um, and provincial, I suppose. Um, I mean, is that something... And which... anti-fascist as well. That was the thing that I remember <laughs> was um, their, yeah. um, the way in which... Um, I mean, I don't know how... 
I don't know how accurate portrayal it was, but it struck me because it seemed to tally with some of the stuff I read was about how Bossy, the found the kind of uh, founder of the league, um, how much he kind of would rant about um, fascist elites in Rome as part of his appeal. Um, and I wondered, I wondered if that was uh, part of the appeal as well, encroaching. You know, if you could tell us a bit more, David, um, mm-hmm. encroaching on the kind of traditional um, strongholds of where that used to be, kind of that were part of the base of um, partisan uh, resistance um, during the Second World War, during the Civil War, um, and how far the Le- the Lega uh, succeeded in kind of eroding that base for um, for the left in Italian politics. Hmm. I mean, it's it's certainly true that um, you know, there's, uh, historically, there's a the, you know the the resistance was far stronger in northern Italy than the south, and the Lega is a very like kind of territorially rooted party. So it's like it has party activities uh, and branches and stuff, which are like very like inbuilt to the local community. So it would have made no sense for them to have anything other than a, a strong uh, anti-fascist uh, position, particularly even if you think of the 80s, it's only like one generation past the war. Uh, so um, Bossi actually received a prison sentence uh, for saying like his uh, members should go around fascist homes and shoot them. Um, I mean, that said, I mean... He got cancelled, huh? <laughs> uh, almost. But uh, I mean, like in uh, in uh, the run up to the uh, 1994 election, uh, the Berlus- the, the Lega was allied to Berlusconi, and also the post-fascist party, which was then called Alianza Nazionale, uh, they were also allied to Berlusconi. But the Lega and Alianza Nazionale didn't ally with each other, and Bossi said, "Kind of over my dead body, would I uh, uh, enter government together with uh, fascists?" Um, and but then, of course, they actually did form a government together. And in the uh, 25th of April, 94, which was like the uh, the like demo for the kind of Liberation Day, the anniversary of the resistance, um, he tried to go on the uh, anti-fascist demo in uh, Milan and was uh, chased away. Um, so, I mean, I think the uh, Lager is certainly like um, able to. Um, both to to build in kind of what were former red areas uh, and uh, also to do a kind of have a kind of like party engagement in the community which is like very rare now in italian politics because like you know forza italia doesn't have like members you know it's just like berlusconi on the tv is the is the party mm. um so the Lega is certainly in some way able to to um um just to fill in for for that kind of like um activism um i'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that um the league is kind of winning over a lot of former left-wing voters because basically we have survey data which suggests that isn't uh, really true i think the thing that they are succeeding in doing though is uh basically like uh the left in its historic heartlands the fall in turnout mm. is particularly severe it's yeah. that the working class left doesn't sit, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah it like, was more. I mean, it was more that specifically. It was more the kind of the old territories that were heartlands of the partisan resistance mm-hmm. and been captured by the Lega, rather than um, a specific kind of shift, like you say, of voters to of old left wing voters. Yeah, sure. Um, Be- because, like, I mean, we have um, the 
regional elections uh, next month. Well, sorry, it's, it's, it's this month now. I mean, so we have the, the regional elections are on 20th and 21st of September, and it's kind of quite widely expected that Tuscany will fall to the Lega, which would be an, an enormous, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the Tories winning Hackney. Or, well, I mean, <laughs> they did win uh, Durham, it's like that. Like, um, you know, and it's like in, uh, in January, there was the regional election in Emilia Romagna, which is probably even more of a red region. And, you know, people were celebrating, uh, like, oh, this is like Stalingrad has held and all of this kind of stuff. But it's like in the, the historically uh, most left dominated region, like even before World War One. And like the, the Democrats beat the Lega like 55 to 45 on a 50% turnout or something. Yeah. So, um, so I think that, that keys in to, I suppose, the, the next question we wanted to put to you, which is, um, I mean, the whole, it seems the whole kind of, um, you know, the whole underpinning of the, of the argument of the discussion is the collapse of the Italian left, which we've already talked about. Um, but I think I, I suppose I'd like, I just wanted you to push you a bit to, to draw it out in a comparative context, um, mm -hmm. because it seems to be so um, that story of the collapse of the Italian left and that it's still kind of running at its course today, like you say, in the regional elections in um, Emilia Romagna, like you just said, as well as Tuscany. Um, how is it that it went from being the strongest communist party in Europe to being um, to the left being weaker than even Greece or Spain, and that we haven't seen anything in Italy that's comparable to um, Corbynism or Syriza or Podemos like we've seen in um, Greece and uh, Spain and the UK. So that seems to be kind of fairly striking. So the the sheer kind of weakness of the Italian left. Could you so could you tell us a bit about why it seems to be so weak compared to? other European countries that have seen a kind of a brief uh, resurgence of the left um, since the crash in 2008? Mm -hmm. um, I think that it has a lot to do with the way in which the Communist Party was hollowed out from within long before its actual end point in 1991. Um, earlier I referred to the fact that uh, in 1991, uh, the leaders of the Italian Communist Party basically decided to recast the party as a pro-European and social democratic uh, party um, and you know, went about doing that. But the fact that they were able to do so um, and, then, and then kind of go about turning it into something actually more like the US Democrat Party uh, owes to like the the fundamental um, weakness of the kind of um, sort of grassroots uh, labor movement on which it was based. Um, like in the post-war period, uh, the party was very determined not to only represent the interests of the most militant workers or industrial workers, but a kind of broad um, people, including. Yeah. Uh, layers of the population who like would have like no like strategic power or like ability to take strike action based on their jobs, uh, you know, including like uh, small business owners and artisans and uh, you know rural laborers, um, you know. So it's like while a worker at like the the Fiat uh, factory at Mirafiori would be able to like influence national politics by like shutting down a, a big like branch of national production. Uh, obviously, that wasn't uh, true of the the general um, working class or popular membership of the party, um, and so the party basically sought to um, build itself 
as something much more like a kind of society within a society. So like kind of like um, um, the, 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 the existence of the local party branch as like somewhere you'd like hang out and like um, somewhere that, um, you know, you could get a job and, and this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the strength of the PCI was that in the period of the resistance and immediately after, it was an enormous force for like social mobility and, uh, you know, people who maybe wouldn't have had like a secondary education could like really like be something in the PCI, uh, you know, be like a party secretary or get a job in a union or get a job in a cooperative run by the party, uh, you know, like PCI run consumer cooperatives had like 8 million members. So it was like a huge oh. force and it had an incredible presence in uh, society. Uh, there's a thing called Festa de Bonita, which is like a local uh, weekend event run by a communist party where like basically they'd lay on like entertainment, but like, you know, just like really lowbrow, like, you know, just like music and they even had like beauty pageants and stuff like that, or like boxing and like, you know, and they, everyone would sit around drinking. And in the in the seventies, they were doing like eight thousand of those per year. Wow, so sounds, really that sounds whole... like something we should recreate. Like yeah, I think that yeah, it sounds great. But but basically, the problem is so through the Communist Party in the immediate post-war period, uh, basically, like people from very humble backgrounds could get a job and, as I say, really be someone through the party. But basically, that system was very poor at reproducing itself. Because while in the immediate aftermath of fascism, like basically like anyone who wanted to could kind of like step in and be involved in the party and so on. Uh, basically, like in the 70s, it's like the same people are still in the same jobs. Um, and, you know, the party, uh, you know, also because frankly, like the Italian Communist Party had uh, functioned on the principle of like co-optation. Uh, it's not like they had democratic debates and then votes and then decided to do one thing or another. Uh, you but know, I mean, very hierarchical organization. Just, just to jump in, because I mean, for all the you know weaknesses of that uh, system and and its inability to reproduce itself, I mean, what ends up happening and what you know, looking back from from our vantage point now, you, I mean, something was very much lost in that and the decline of the the communist movement and and all the kind of the social networks uh, the social clubs and so on that um, that kind of stitched that those societies all together um and i mean just to zoom us forward obviously you know the period of the 90s and 2000s you know you see growing commercialization growing individualization um and it leads up to a point where i mean you've got the center left which has become completely neoliberalized as uh, you've already described and you know Berlusconi is the main figure in politics, and it kind of sets this uh, populist template. Um, the irony then is that this populist template, at least the Berlusconi version, then comes to be displaced by um, by Lega. And I, I, maybe we should jump forward to 2018 and to Lega's victory. Then, really, it's a five star movement's victory. Um, so that it's a kind of a complicated story. So maybe you could tell us about that and how uh, Lega comes. Um, to be part of a coalition government and then comes to really take charge? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, in the, um, in the run-up to um, the 2018 election, 
uh, it looked like um, the possibilities were a grand coalition of the Democrats and Berlusconi's Forza Italia, or more likely uh, uh, some sort of coalition involving Five Star and uh, and the Lega. Um, part of the, the backdrop to this is uh, throughout the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, um, Berlusconi had always been the dominant force within the Italian right. He always had three parties, um, but with Berlusconi as the kind of leader of the coalition, um, running most of the regional governments and so on. And uh, as it turned out, the, uh, the, 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 he was destroyed for two kind of reasons in the 2010s, one of which was from 2011 till late 2013. Uh, he was in various uh, technocratic, he supported uh, technocratic and grand coalition governments with the Democrats, Mario Monti. And then that ended when he had his fraud conviction in uh, August 2013, which banned him from uh, public office. Uh, and uh, Salvini, uh, at the same time, became leader of the Lega, uh, which was in a very weak position. Um, because of the uh, conviction of uh, Umberto Bossi, its founding leader. Uh, but basically, this was a period of, of crisis in the Italian uh, right, because Berlusconi had basically been pushed out of office by the EU, uh, and well, by, by the European Central Bank plus President Napolitano, um, and had basically sucked it up and then supported technocratic governments of the centre, um, the Lega was very weak, but then saw the opportunity to go um, national uh, and start organizing against the North and try and become the, the major uh, force in, in the right-wing bloc. Um, broadly, I think you could say my book um, attributes quite a lot of Salvini's rise to, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, it's often kind of said that like Salvini is successful because of his masterful manipulation mm. of social media or, or like fake news or because he gets money from Russia, all of these kind of things. But I actually think the reasons are much more prosaic uh, and to do with the, the weak yeah. temporary setback for Berlusconi. No, that, I, I mean, that's, in, that, that, that's very clear, I think, in the book. It's notable how little of a protagonist Salvini actually is in the book. And I think, I mean, I, I by what you're saying, that's deliberate. And I think that's quite good because it does, instead of building up this image of this populist strongman who by force of will has managed to transform uh, Italian politics to his benefit, it's very clear that it's just the weakness and the crumbling of even relatively new forces like Forza Italia um, and Berlusconi uh, that allow for Lega to um, really seize the initiative. Yeah, and in fact, we're seeing um, um, two similar processes now because, uh, you know, as I was uh, saying, like, you know, Salvini took, made the Lega into a national and nationalist party. You know, he apologized to, to the to Naples for having dissed it in the past and this kind of stuff uh, and started to, um, and basically off the back of the weakness of Forza Italia, he started organizing branches, getting like even former Forza Italia members, former fascists to like be his like local candidates. There was some carpet bagging as well because Northern, Northerners realized they could stand in the seat in the South and this kind of thing. Um, but now we're seeing that that is coming undone because basically Salvini himself has uh, been badly um, affected by both the fact that he quit the government in August last year and failed to prompt a general election, that he didn't win the Emilia-Romagna regional election, and that his response to coronavirus has been very poor. Um, and so the Lega, which had 
uh, last year in, uh, in the time of the European elections, it got 34%, and now it's polling about 25 whereas percent. Uh, uh, whereas Giorgia Milani, who leads Fratelli d'Italia, the post-fascist party, uh, they're on 15%. And basically, it's a more or less direct transfer of 10% of the entire electorate from the Lega to Fratelli d'Italia. And I think mm. it's not inconceivable that uh, she could overtake him by the time of the next general election, which after all is in, it's, uh, could be as far as three years away. It, it's fascinating how, I mean, this in part, the whole book is a bit of a story of uh, the cannibalization by new forces, cannibalizing forces, which used to be new, but now have become old. Um, so, you know, just as we described Lega doing that to uh, Berlusconi's formation, then maybe even uh, the Fratelli d'Italia come to do that to Lega. Um, and I think we'll talk about that maybe a little bit towards the end of this. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about Five Star. Um, long time mm-hmm. listeners will know that we've discussed this a little bit more in depth we had Paolo Garbaldo on on episode 60 um, so check out that if you want to know a little bit more about um, Five Star and the way it works um, wh- I mean I personally find it kind of fascinating because it's possibly like the purest um, populist party in Western Europe I mean it's completely politically eclectic ideologically diffuse um, and I guess and something that you point out it's, it's unified really only by its anti-politics um, and I think something that is a real benefit that uh, a benefit of the book and something that you do really masterfully is set up Lega against five star against each other and see what comes out of that because they're both, you know, quote unquote populist parties. Um, and in fact, uh, you quote uh, someone, Marco Revelli saying that, you know, the, you kind of, there are two sorts of populisms. The five star is the revolt of the excluded of, of, of people from the South and of workers, whereas the Lega is maybe uh, were people who used to be middle class people who used to be kind of incorporated in the dominant bloc, but who are no longer. Um, but uh, specifically with with um, five star, I guess um, I wanted to know. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe you could describe a little bit about who its voters are and um, what its relationship to the left is, because I think it it's maybe a lot of its discourse maybe is or at least was superficially appealing to the left. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the Five Star Movement uh, first stood in a general election in 2013 and not having stood before, it got 25%. In 2018, it got 32%. And now it's polling like 15% and appears to be in crisis. But nonetheless, like its initial rise was very dramatic uh, in the period after the, the 2008 uh, crisis. Um, so I think uh, so, um, what you allude to in, in terms of the different faces of populism, uh, and also like you asked earlier, like well, why is Italy? Why doesn't Italy have like a Syriza or a Podemos? You know, apart from the fact that Syriza is shit, but like um, you know, like <laughs> but even then, even then, it doesn't even have that. Yeah, I mean, in in a way though, I mean, you could even say that there has been a certain convergence between Syriza and five-star because basically what they ended up as is just like the entire dimension of conflict and mobilization and standing up for workers interests which is junk so they just became the local enforcers of eu austerity um but yeah i mean like i was saying before like you know the 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 reason why five-star is strong partly or, or was strong in the the period of the economic crisis partly has to do with like very like Subjective factors and the weakness of the Rifondazione Comunista and attempts to kind of revive the, the far left. Um, but I think, in a way, like uh, Five Star is a flexion of the 
um, of Italian politics, uh, Italian political culture, and of the demobilization of the workers' movement, because basically uh, its uh, support base is very heavily drawn from the kind of social groups you would expect or would have historically uh, voted for the left. Right. Uh, oh, just fact, yeah. No, just 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 to jump in here, and maybe this is what you were going to say anyway. But what's the difference between sort of your typical five star and typical Lager voter? So, um, five-star voters, broadly speaking, are a bit younger and much more working class than Labour voters. Uh, often, when we talk about like you know the populist revolt in like you know Brexit and Trump and Le Pen or you know Italy and whatever, like we, we kind of only really hear about the kind of like abandoned, you know, the, like the, you know, like the guy who lives in an old mining town who can't get a job anymore, kind of mm. thing. So, like. There, you know, some people who uh, used to vote for the Communist Party and stuff do vote for the Lager, but very few. Um, so, like, uh, basically, um, you know, I, I have some statistics in the book, which is basically like in, if you look at the 2013 and 2018 elections, uh, basically about half of uh, unemployed people uh, and about 40% of public sector workers and slightly less private sector workers uh, vote for the Five Star Movement. And also the Five Star Movement is much stronger in the South. Um, also, like uh, it had, particularly in 2013, it had a very young electorate and very few old people, and very few uh, pensioners, uh, whereas now it's kind of become a bit more uh, homogenous. Uh, the Lega um, does have a section of um, uh, blue-collar support, but it's kind of more the kind of workers who probably wouldn't traditionally have been associated with the labor movement. So as I say, like workers who are working for very small businesses and would thus probably subjectively be kind of closer to the interests of their employers. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. like if you work in a, uh, if you work in a workshop that has four workers, you're not going to organize a strike. Yeah. Um, and also it's uh, more Northern, uh, of, even, even after going national, um, it's um, it's kind of like caders would probably be like independent professionals, um, you know, kind of like say doctors, lawyers, that kind of stuff, but very uh, provincial, um, and um, much worse among like unemployed people, um, basically uh, more more bourgeois as well. I mean, it's it's kind of we can talk about the forms of politics and like rhetoric and fake news and all of this kind of stuff, but like at root. The Lega is a party that calls for a fifteen percent flat tax. So, although of course mm. I emphasize in my book that like economic issues are kind of pushed into the background, or indeed that the state's power of decision making over them has been reduced. Um, nonetheless, I mean, if you look at the fundamental economic program of the Lega, it's very, very right wing and neoliberal, um, and it, it's always been a party of privatization. And I mean, this probably you could say that in the demand for northern regions to keep more of their own tax take that could have like implied some sort of benefit for uh, you know the users of public services and so mm. on there uh, but uh, in general it's uh, it's you know, it's uh, strongly anti-public sector whereas uh, the five star movement adopts much more or at least has at times adopted more of an idea of kind of like um 
efficiency and austerity for some, but in order to like protect like necessary public services. Yeah. But it's quite marginal, so it's the overall rhetoric. Yeah, but I mean, I think just at the level of voters, I mean, I do think it's fascinating and I think it's very important the way that you highlight that it's not uh, old ex left working class leftists who then start voting suddenly for the populist right. Um, which I wonder, you know, if it doesn't have a gen- more general applicability as well, because I think when we talk about the, the populist right in many places, it often seems to be more a radicalization of the old center right than necessarily leftists moving en masse to the, to the, to the far right or to the populist right. On the other hand, you do point out something which is really interesting, which is that um, it's possible that Five Star kind of has acted as a gateway drug for um, for Lega. So people who used to be communist voters, perhaps, or, um, you know, uh, Democratic Party voters who then voted for Five Star and then uh, a further election on end up voting for uh, for Lega. I mean, do you think that's that something like that's going on? And, and maybe even if I could venture, maybe there's something sort of similar that happened, for example, in the UK, where former Labour Party voters voted for UKIP or the Brexit Party and then came to eventually vote for the Conservative Party. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's certainly true, and um, including in the British case. And that's kind of one, of one of the reasons why I do say that Italy is not just like a weird outlier, but rather in a, a concentration or an acceleration of what's happening elsewhere. Because one thing we can talk about in terms of party politics is stuff like uh, their programs or uh, their like mobilizing strategies or the kind of activism they involve and you know certainly in Italy like there's you know at that kind of level um, the, the kind of space of political decision making has reduced a lot but then another factor is simply the fact that if voters lose their like identity uh, the kind of identitarian party allegiance then once it's been broken once, it's very hard to rebuild. I mean, you know, I think mm. that's a big problem for Labour, like because yeah. it's kind of like you, know, you have that, that kind of sentiment of like, oh yeah, like my granddad would be turning in his grave if I ever voted Tory, or you think of stuff like you know, like the you know, like Liverpool and the and actually, I mean, that Liverpool is a good example because the the um, the idea of this of it being like a rock solid Labour city is actually quite recent. Like it comes from like the, the 60s or 70s rather than like the 30s. Yeah. But, but now it would seem very strong. But then the, the problem is it's like, uh, you know, like kind of gratitude isn't hereditary. And like once you, like it's kind of like if you look at the Italian Communist Party, like its electoral rise continued in the 80s, like after the decline of the kind of like sort of uh, trade union sort of or workplace-based labor movement. Like, its ability to like bring people together um, wasn't just like to do with like the particular industries that existed at the time. Yet after that party had gone, then clearly the the kind of thing that would connect um, people to working class politics is is has has gone. And like if you think of like someone who's like a five star voter who might be say. Uh, middle-aged, living with their parents, maybe never had a job, they're not going to have any kind of like, like unless they've basically inherited it from their parents, they're very unlikely to have inherited, so they're very unlikely to have any kind of like labor movement culture. Mm, and it's exactly, not like they can yeah, like... Yeah. So I mean... So, so I think like once once they were parties are in government together and the activists and leaders of Five Star 
uh, were uh, defending everything Salvini did, then it was natural that people would vote for the real thing rather than uh, yeah. its pale shadow. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think you've already mentioned there kind of generational splits. And I think there's no way of discussing Italy without discussing the generational question. And in fact, you dedicated a whole chapter to it, I guess. Um, so maybe we should move on to that. Um, basically, it seems that on perhaps more than in other places, the generational question has more of a material basis than elsewhere and certainly has more immediate political effects, it seems. You know, I mean, I just the the sheer number for example of 20 to 34 year olds who are who are needs who aren't in you know education training um or employment uh is is nearly 30 percent, which is huge really um and there's a whole discourse around this which isn't uh to kind of boost up young people against the old people but seems to be more the opposite that um i think you quote a uh, uh, minister of uh of, of democrat central left Demo- uh, excuse me a central left uh, former minister of labor who said that uh, children should get out from under the feet of their parents um so maybe you could depict these dynamics for us yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the the thing is, is that the culture war is always used in a reactionary way, no matter who is saying it. So, like, I mean, I'm actually, although I, I, I in my book, I call that Italy a gerontocracy, and it's like a very observable phenomenon um, in which kind of like uh, the kind of idea which is like, uh, sort of like old people know best and the country used to be richer because old people worked harder whereas young people are lazy um, so that's like a very reactionary very pervasive idea like the reason why Italy is poorer now than 20 years ago is nothing to do with like uh, the way the uh, political economy of uh, is organized but but rather like just like young people today can't be bothered so therefore the country is in decline um, at the same time, I'm kind of somewhat wary of 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 the of kind of generational politics in the sense that it's also used in the, the, the in the other direction, which is like this constant claim, uh, particularly promoted by the Renzi uh, government in the in the mid uh, 2010s, which was like the reason why young people can't get a job is because there's too many old people who have jobs, uh, and so the pl- the kind of posts are like blocked. So what we need to do is like create more volatility and basically make it easier to sack people from their jobs, so that uh, so that young people can have them instead, even without like increasing the overall amount of employment. Um, we have the same thing now, where um, the government uh, imposed a, a, a layoffs ban during the coronavirus shutdown. So like you know, literally, when like no one was meant to be going to work. And the Employers Federation Confindustria say, like, this is unfair on young people because, uh, and, and you know, Tito Boeri, who's like a, a very prominent economist who writes for a Repubblica, kind of of the politics of like Matteo Renzi, he wrote that the reason why um, you, uh, uh, youth emigration is is highest now since it's been uh, since the fifties is because the government has imposed a layoffs ban during coronavirus, even though, of course. Uh, the immigration is very certainly not caused by anything to do with coronavirus. Mm, yeah. uh, it's been going on for, for years, and of course, people literally can't leave uh, or, or weren't able to, for, for months. 
so so you you get this kind of uh, constant use of the rhetoric of of this kind of like generational divide in order to 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 basically force people to work more and for less money uh yeah i mean like the 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 renzi government also introduced like um a thing of like compulsory um unemployed sorry compulsory unpaid work for school students like internships uh doing up to 400 hours a year um and um, it's kind of like uh the part of the problem is the way in which the the idea of um I mean, like Italy has a very like undeveloped welfare state, and a lot of like what we think of as like the necessary functions of welfare are instead just provided through the family. So, like one of the things I mentioned in the in the book is that uh, this like sky high uh, and indeed rising amount of uh, proportion of young people who live with their parents. So, like uh, the the majority of thirty year olds in Italy still live with their parents. And like it's easy to say, like, oh, that's because of some like Catholic thing, or the fact that Italians love their grandparents and their mum cooking them dinner. But when you look at the actual, the fact that that uh, you know there's ten percent more people living with their parents now than there were twenty years ago, like the reason is because they can't make it out of the family, you know, they yeah. can't afford to move out, and also of course because things like childcare and so on also aren't uh, provided. Um, and then you have in t- in reaction to that this kind of idea which is like well because young people don't have um you know this is this is like in la republica in the democrat party this is like the center left this kind of idea which is like well young people live with their parents so therefore they don't kind of really need to be paid to go to work because they're having their expenses covered <laughs> yeah. anyway <laughs> um and so like the, 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 yeah. Like, yeah so I, I believe it was Deliveroo may have been Foodora. There was a, uh, you know, like a, a bicycle food delivery firm. They had like a strike, and uh, the the like CEO of the company said, uh, "Well, you know, you can't really expect to, to this to be like a real job. It should just be like pocket money if you enjoy cycling around." Uh, and so, like uh, an economist I quote in the book, Marta Fane, she's really good on this uh, phenomenon, which is like the the spread of. Um, unpaid work and, and particularly the idea yeah. that young people basically it's like kind of like you should do loads of free work in order to get yourself the like right to uh, to eventually have a paid job of course this also connects with things like um uh, uh so so basically like if you think like uh because um like italian industrial exports have become less competitive uh, there's a sort of general trend towards job creation being in like low-skilled and um, part-time precarious jobs, and the kind of reforms so-called Italy has had over the last thirty years have, have tended also to entrench this kind of idea of like um, of of like being on you know basically uh, being um, like working also being ready to work whenever you're needed, but not having any kind of stable income. So there's this kind of stuff like labor vouchers for just like doing a few hours work at the t- at a time. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, of course, also all of that is combined with the fact, you know, mo- most young people have no experience of the labor movement and the large majority of trade union members are pensioners. Uh, I, so, I, I think that's really interesting how those things uh, interlink. I mean, precaritization and specifically the kind of generational culture war, which, as you said, only 
tends towards conservative or reactionary ends. And I think one other way in which uh, that applies, um, not so much in the generational question, but the question of emigration, um, is the fact that it, Italy is losing a lot of its citizens who emigrate abroad to find work. And one of the one kind of one seeming uh, consequence of that is hostility to immigration, um, which might seem paradoxical or um, yeah, understandable, depending on your perspective. But I mean, it, it seems to be a phenomenon which is obviously uh, applies well beyond Italy, um, you know, in Hungary or Poland, for example, where there's a lot of emigration that that leads to a lot of hostility to immigration. And I think in the book you call uh, anti-immigration sentiment a simple distraction from the need to impl- improve the employment rate. I think what you've just described there is quite stark. Yeah, because, I mean, Italy, I mean, but the thing is, is in Italy, it's like you can't even begin. Uh, <laughs> so what I'm about to say, I find really annoying, but myself, but it's kind of like, it's really frustrating that the um, political debate in Italy kind of never really starts from, it's like at, at, at once the debate is obsessed with the idea of like foreign models and like, if only we were like a serious and real country. And yet at the same time, there's not the most like basic understanding of the reasons why Italy is actually unusual and the kind of things that could be fairly simply uh, improved or like, the kind of reasons why uh, public investment is, is, uh, is not just like somehow like a waste of money. Like uh, an example I give in the book is that um, women's, so the employment of women in Italy is like far less than any other Western country. And the reason the, the the fundamental reason is the lack of provision of free childcare. So it, uh, that means that the overall employment rate in Italy is like sixty two percent, which is like ten percent less than than other big um, sort of Western European countries. Um, so yeah, I mean, like the idea that um, the idea that the immigrants in Italy are taking the jobs is 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 you know is. It's ridiculous because also because the uh, the 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 uh, it's it's um, I mean <laughs> f- frankly like if you I mean I lived in Rome for for seven years and you would basically like never see a, a black person who wasn't like selling like tissues or lighters or whatever in the street like they're very definitely not uh, you know taking jobs of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, I think like uh, there's a there's a kind of it's almost a Tom Piketty quote. He kind of means something a bit more complicated than I'm about to say. But like Tom Piketty says, like basically, like if you if you um, if you leave the nation state in charge of nothing except its own borders, then your political debate is all going to be about immigration. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you I just. Mean, I think, yeah, no, I, I, it, it's a good a good quote. Um, but maybe to kind of zoom back a little bit and think about the future prospects of Lega, perhaps particularly the way you frame it in terms of this goal of a nationwide conservative political party. Um, do you think this prize is is within reach, or do you think they're at risk about a uh, risk of being outflanked by the post fascists? What I mean, you know, we don't we don't want to try and predict the future, but what do you think are the um, the prospects after having taken Rome. We do want to predict the future, so please <laughs> predict the future. Okay, I'll look into my crystal ball. Um, no, I mean, like, I think um, while we can't make like predictions, and certainly, like, say, a year ago, 
you just said it was much more likely that Salvini is like definitely going to become prime minister than now because you know, he has the biggest party still, they're on like 25%. But the, um, some of the contradictions of, the, of his leadership are kind of beginning to, to unravel. Um, like overall, the right-wing parties together have more or less exactly 50% of the vote um, in, in opinion polls, uh, whereas the left plus five-star plus the various liberal fragments are very divided. So like overall, the, the right is like hegemonic and in the regional elections later this month, I fully expect them to win most of the regions, maybe even historic left-wing ones. Um, I think uh, Salvini's weaknesses are um, basically three. The first is that while he has tried to make an all-Italian nationalist party um, and you know extend its organization all over Italy, uh, the fact that it still really is very northern centric means that he has um, a kind of source of tension with the regional governments of uh, Veneto and Lombardy, which are the two biggest regions that the Lega uh, controls. And in particular, the governor of Veneto, uh, Luca Zaya, is, um, you know, handled the coronavirus basically uh, very effectively. You know, at the start of it, Veneto. Uh, was the worst hit region and then he shut it down and or at least that's how people perceive it um so while the and you know even w when the Lega were in government the Vento and Lombardy were still pushing for greater regional autonomy so I think there's a, a, a certain like source of uh it's not exactly opposition to his own leadership but there's only a tension between the national party and the the regional one um, the second is that the uh, European question is very unresolved, and the Lega is struggling to articulate a coherent response to the to like the European uh, recovery fund and the current bailout measures. And just on just just on that, David, I wanted to ask you specifically. Um, I mean, I mean, do tell us about the the Lega's response to the European recovery fund, but I also wanted to ask you: Do you think it was a mistake for Salvini to drop his opposition to the euro? in the long run, at least? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I think, like, the problem is, is okay, so, I assume you're, you know, like, from his electoral perspective, it doesn't make sense for him to argue for Euro exit because um, within the Lega's own base, there is an enormous divide on that question. Like, I think the, the thing is, is that the Eurosceptic sentiment in Italy is very soft. It's, it's like, it's like uh, because in the 90s, all the main parties, including the Lega, uh, some would say in particular the Lega, were like powerfully pro-European and, and argued that the EU was going to like bring Italy like into the future. You know, even Bossi said that the, uh, the North should split away because it was, would become like Germany. And the expectations, which were absurd, in the EU have been like entirely disappointed, um, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the idea that it would be good to leave, uh, basically because if Italy left the Euro, it would mean bankruptcy. Um, so I think like the, 
the um, Salvini's tendency is to like pick fights over basically trivial issues uh, around, um, you know, like the particular elements of the recovery fund, or like, you know, of course, focusing mainly on migration, but like among the Lagos base, there isn't a majority for leaving the euro because uh, basically savers would be bankrupted. It's like, with, it's like once you're in, it's much harder to leave. I mean, it's not like Brexit, is it? I mean, no, no, absolutely. It's um, it's a tremendously more difficult thing. Um, and actually, in Veneto in particular, like Veneto is like you know, Veneto probably has more economic ties to to Munich than to Rome. You know, so I mean, I think uh, in in particular there, uh, I don't think that um, like you know, small businessmen they export stuff want to. Uh, I I think also it kind of like, I think there's there's a kind of certain idea which is a bit like. Um, so it's you know I would actually argue that that Italy should uh, go bankrupt. I mean I think they need to have you know they need the debt cancelled. Bankruptcy isn't like the end of the world, uh, and lots of countries have been through that and survived and recovered. But it just like really doesn't fit with people's like expectations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it sounds terrible, obviously. No, uh, of course. No, so so I mean I think um, I think that in the current phase. Salvini will move towards a more sharply Eurosceptic position, at least like rhetorically, because he's in opposition. Um, but I, th- I think he's on kind of difficult ground. I mean, part, part of the dynamic too is that uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Meloni's party, is much less Eurosceptic. Like it's like um, it's kind of aligned to the the group in the EU uh, Parliament, the European Conservatives and Reformists. So it was like the the British Tories were in it. And you know, like law and justice in Poland and stuff like that. But you know, Fratelli Italia, and this is the other thing I was going to mention uh, in my three reasons. Like Fratelli d'Italia is much uh, more aligned to like uh, to like Trump, and much more starkly like anti-China and anti-Putin. Um, and I think like you know, there's a, a good potential for as those as that kind of clash. Or like new Cold War or whatever becomes more um, um, you know, more prominent as an organising principle of politics. Uh, of course, Italy itself, under the League of Five Star Government, joined the, the Belt and Road Initiative and became the first country to do so. So I think there's a, a big split within the right on that front, and that uh, the the uh, uh, um, Milani's line is more consensual and puts her more in line with mainstream um, European conservatism. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's a it's kind of a, a grim situation in that there doesn't seem to be any force which is right now able to dislodge um, this trajectory of continuing decadence. I mean, over the past thirty years, and I mean, you you know, you start off the book, I think, talking about how uh, you know GDP figures and GDP per capita now is worse than it was in nineteen ninety, and so on. Um, so it's this long, slow decline, which, um, as you say, even bankruptcy would probably be uh, would be a, a a beneficial thing in terms of shaking the current uh, order up. Um, so, I mean, I guess you, right now you don't see anything able to do that, though I guess we, we can wonder what uh, what the kind of uh, world coming out of COVID will look like um, and what uh, kind of new forces that might throw up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> frankly, I mean, the, the there's like, I mean, like earlier, uh, one of the, your questions was like, well, you know, why hasn't Italy had something like Corbyn? And uh, part of the answer to that is also that, you know, the Corbyn thing, of course, was like totally unexpected. 
and you didn't like result from some sort of groundswell of support that had already existed in some other form. Um, and also after the Corbyn moment that it ended, it's very rapidly disappeared. Like whatever influence or organization was built up is now uh, very weak. Um, so I think like there, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, I think the, the bases aren't there for, for something to emerge because there's just like the, 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 the means of action don't uh, exist. The, the labor movement is very weak and the, the state is, uh, not going, I mean, I, I, I would consider the chances of it had exit to be very, very low and, uh, you know, there's a new party called Italexit, formed by an expelled uh, five-star senator, uh, General Kamala And indeed, Adani. and a friend of the podcast, Thomas Fadzi, is also um, a member, a pro- high-profile Eurosceptic writer. Yeah, and uh, Thomas is a good friend of mine, and we uh, often go down the pizzeria Formula Una. Uh, but uh, I'll probably get cancelled for, for that. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, for eating but, pizza. Pizza. For eating Formula, pizza. Formula Una. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we go there. Um, but, um, <laughs> so, yeah, join us. Uh, but, um, no, like, uh, I, you know, I think Thomas and, well, yeah, I think their party will, I think has good chances of imposing itself on the national, uh, political, uh, debate. And, uh, you know, there's already some polls which have it on like 5% and, you know, it's getting like some notice and, you know, I, I think it could like, you know, uh, go somewhere, but then I, I think it's kind of like the same problem. I said before, which is like, it's very hard to imagine how the Italian state would actually go about organizing Italexit. And I don't think that there's anything like the, um, uh, the, the kind of like the kind of social block or the kind of forces who all want that to happen. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, like Paragone is a former five-star senator, but before that he was with the Lega. And like, I imagine they're likely to be sort of fishing for support, maybe in some of the same kind of voters. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult to imagine how it ha- how it happened because also it's like after decades in which all, the entire political uh, uh, consensus is like the state can't do anything; it's too bad. Italy is too small yeah. and feeble, and so on. I think it's actually really hard to get people to make the jump from thinking the euro doesn't work to mm. we should leave the euro and <laughs> while coping with the backlash also begin to like reorganize the principles of the economy um, yeah. away from one based on debt and property ownership to one's based on public investment. So, you know, yeah. I, I think it's great if Thomas can uh, advance those, uh, those politics, but I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's really difficult. And you know, I, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we'll see how prominent the the kind of uh, kind of idea of like public investment and and, and, and stuff is in the in the in the party's uh, positions. But like, I mean, if you look at the the if we look at like the the left or you know whatever like the the, the, the so called Italian left, which is like the Democrats and, and five star movement. I mean, they are just like they literally all they're doing is um, shoving further austerity um, down people's throats and telling them that they're getting this like great favor from the EU. And, you know, they're using uh, Salvini as, you know, it's like in the nineties, they used Berlusconi as the scarecrow and now it's uh, Salvini. And, you know, they, they sort of 
organize against the right on a kind of culture war basis but they're they're offering nothing in terms of like mm. um, well they, I, I, they have no they, they don't even it, i think it probably like you know like mariana Mazzucato is a, a, an advisor to the um uh, conte's government at the moment and you know yeah. i mean yeah, and they're doing like, you know, it, but it's kind of like, I'll give an example. It's like, you know, the Genoa Bridge collapsed two years ago. And, uh, you know, people were saying, well, the, the bridge, which was owned basically by the Benetton family, had like not been maintained properly. And then 43 people died. So it should be like taken off them and nationalized. And like the Conte government didn't even come close to doing that. It like basically bought a 33% public stake in it and said some of the rest would have to be resold. Uh, you know, they haven't reversed the privatization. But then you get like La Repubblica, uh, Tito Boeri, the, 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 the like leaders of the uh, liberal centrist parties, uh, the, the center left media, who are like, this is like Venezuela. Like, why are you like interfering in the, why is there like state intervention in the economy? And, and basically, like, you know, part of that is like a cultural shift produced by the, the end of the communist party but also really it's because in the european union like you can't you know if you're in the european union and eurozone and have 2.5 trillion in public debt then indeed you don't have many tools of state intervention in the economy that's actually a really good place uh, to leave it um and i think maybe just to recap something which uh, is in your book which i'll uh, restate the title first they took rome how the populist right conquered italy um that the real villains of the piece uh, in your book is not so much the populist right who really just benefit from a wider breakdown but it's really the neoliberal elite uh, who lead italy down this path um of uh, as you put it knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing uh, so let's leave it there uh, thank you very much david yeah, thanks a lot thanks for having me on um I hope I'm not too uh, incoherent. No. <laughs> cool. And it's uh, it's great to have you back on, and um, we'll have to have you back on when you know when we see how the chips fall with all of this. I mean, I'd be curious to talk more about the European Recovery Fund at some point too, because I think it's actually um, quite a big story in different kind of national contexts, and it's an important one in Italy, particularly with respect to the Belt and Road and all that. So, mm. something we can uh, talk. Hopefully, have a chance to talk about again. Yeah, that would be fantastic.